All right, so today uh, I've got Dr. Shrieky in the office, and we're going to be talking about an interesting topic of apneic oxygenation. This is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, it's something that kind of came onto the scene when I started to get into the foam world, uh, and I thought it was really interesting and something that you know not many people had, were doing at the time and had you know good physiologic principles, which means it's probably wrong, right? Whenever you think something's got some good physiologic purpose, um, but also kind of made you know it made sense, and there was some decent, albeit retrospective, literature out there that says yeah, it decreased you know deoxygenation or desaturations during uh, intubation in the e- the ED setting. So I started doing it, and then we had. Uh, the fellow trial came out. We'll talk about that uh, and kind of why we're talking about this right now anyway. But just to kind of like start off, uh, what is apneic oxygenation in, in like your mind, in your setting, and how do you use it in your practice or do you use it in your practice? Well, I think what you said is kind of true because you kind of alluded to the point that it's we it's something we want to work, right? Right. This would be awesome. Something so simple, you could put a nasal cannula on somebody right. and it up. won't desat. Yeah. And by some magic of the Venturi effect, they will magically keep their oxygenation and not become apneic. <clears throat> and I think that's come a little 180 degrees from the old days where with the sedation we'd say, well, we need a entitled CO2. Right. Because that way you can detect the apnea much longer. And so the idea of apneic oxygenation kind of is almost the correlator of that, right? Where you can say now, well, we don't care about their PCO2 and their apnea because we're right. going to induce apnea. We just want to keep them from being apneic, from being from hypoxic, right. hypoxic for as long as possible, yeah. despite their apnea. And so you're right, when it first came on the scene, and I think that was that um, wine, uh, this is Scott Weingart put one out, and, uh, that was back in 2013, 14, I believe. And, and then uh, the other big airway guy. Levitan. Levitan, mm-hmm. Richard Levitan. And they came out with that Annals of Emergency Medicine article. Yep. And I think a lot of people started doing it. I definitely started doing it. And it's always interesting to be on that curve of early adopter versus late adopter. And I know you never want to be kind of last and you never want to be first. So when I initially started doing it, I found the same thing that I think most people encountered where you really had to explain to the RTs what you were doing. Oh, absolutely. Because for the life of them, it nobody knew Just what you were doing. baffled them. They had no idea. And I think part of that is from most RTs, as great as they are, come from the operating room. So right. the first thing they do is take off the uh, the uh, the um, the mask. The yeah, the non-rebreather. Right, and then they and replace it with a bag. A, <laughs> well, they have the circuit, right? <laughs> the they have Yeah, and that's it. And so, in order to do apneic oxygenation, then you had to have the right setup. Explain to the RT have an extra Christmas tree or have a tank underneath. Right. You'd have to explain to the nurse what you're doing. And in the mix in the ER of all the craziness of maybe it's an agitated patient, maybe it's a patient who's, you know, an unplanned airway, that makes it more difficult to set those up. So I I think I tried early on to do that. And I actually had a couple of cases where I felt them still desat. Why you have the Yeah. Interesting. I had I feel like I had a couple of cases of that. And given how difficult it was to get everybody congruent with doing this, I backed off for a little bit. Yeah. And then I started to try it again. <clears throat> and once it was more adapted by people, I found it easier to do. And once the RTs got to the point where they're putting nasal cannula on people, right, right, right. well, then it's easy to do. Yeah. 
that's kind of how that's kind of my experience too was at first it was like people I'd be going to innovate and then have the nasal cannula on the, the non-rebreather and people would like pull the nasal cannula off as I'm going I'm like uh, you know, and then you don't have time in that moment because right. they're already paralyzed. <laughs> You're going for your view to really be like, no, I wanted that on there for this reason. Um, well, let's talk about the setup maybe real quick. Yeah, absolutely. So just kind of the way that I've done it is I, you absolutely have them on the non-rebreather. You crank that up to 15 and then I put the nasal cannula on underneath it. So you have the nasal cannula, the non-rebreather over top and the nasal cannula, I just kind of like crank it until it sounds like a jet's coming out of there. I don't really know what it is because, you know, it maxes out at, I think ours is 12. 20? 15. Is it 15? But you, you want to keep cranking it so you get as much O2 passing through the, the nasopharynx as possible. Um, and then basically what happens is once you take the mask off, you leave the nasal cannula in there with blowing that O2 in the back of their throat. The one thing I will say that I've noticed while I since I've been doing this, though, is it seems to dry out their posterior pharynx. So I start to lube. Like, <coughs> I lube my blade because I can't tell you how many uh, airways that I've gone into and didn't lube it. <laughs> And you just get stuck on the tongue and you're just jamming the tongue into the back of the throat. So I lube everything now if I'm going to do this because I find that it's much drier. Um, but the idea is, you know, it'll kind of open up the tissues in the back. You get this kind of, like you said, this diffusion of O2 into the lungs and perhaps, you know, decrease your risks of, uh, you know, hypoxia. True, ap- yeah, or true, true hypoxia. True hypoxia during the, the <clears throat> episodes of apnea, which we obviously induced with our induction medications. But The hardest part I found was what source are you to use. Right. Right, because... Sometimes you have two wall mounts, Absolutely. but not one Christmas tree. And for everybody, you know, when you say the Christmas tree, the little green thing right, that the screws adapter. on top, the adapter. And then what I found works best is just having a, using the tank that's under the bed. And as long as most uh, things have a tank under the bed. That one go the, high enough, though? Can yeah. you crank that past 15? You can crank it up. Because really, uh, for apnea okay. oxygenation, I think all you need is to go up to around 6, 7, 8, something like that. Okay. It's not like the non-rebreather where we crank it up to right. 15 and then all the way more, so you actually get that true 100%. That five, and yeah. I guess it's a little aside, you know what's interesting, I find a lot of the residents now and a lot of the people I notice, they'll turn it right to 15, and for some reason they think it stops there. But really, like it's more like spinal right. tap, which you should turn it to 11. And this is the only case where it really goes up to 11. You know what I mean by spinal tap? Remember that movie? Uh, no? Uh-uh. Okay, spinal tap, there's a movie spinal tap. He had his speakers, and he wanted a speaker that went to 11, because most speakers went to 10, uh-huh. and he wanted to be that much louder. Huh. <clears throat> which was the joke, but in the, our case, the 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 uh, non-rebreather really does need to be cranked just past fifteen, so it is really going loud. Right, right. Yeah, the and I know people don't do that enough, and they don't realize that you can go higher than that. Yeah, and the RTs for whatever <clears throat> reason are the ones that'll they're like, why do you keep going? Like, oh, because we want that FI, and they're and, like, and, and then actually, I'll watch them kind of like crank it back down to fifteen after I've given it a couple twists. Which is interesting because there is actually literature that would say. If you don't go past that 15, you won't get that 100% non-rebreather. Right. At 15, it's not 100% non-rebreather. Right. So I usually use the bottom tank okay. for the nasal cannula. And I find if you have a bottom tank there, that allows everybody, takes the stress off, finding another room. Because right. right, you need one adapter for the vent, one adapter for the bag valve mask, and one adapter then for the optic oxygenation. Yeah, that makes sense. So that makes it a little bit easier. When you don't have that other can- canister underneath, it's more difficult. Yeah. And I think other than that, then I notice people have a hard time of, like, taking off the mask, leaving the nasal cannula, finding the nasal cannula, and rearranging things. So but I think that's the way I like to do it is, is you have the tank underneath and use that. Okay. So, and kind of like I talked about earlier, so this was something that I kind of, like you said, I was a little bit of an, probably too early of an adopter, mm-hmm. maybe, but I felt like it's not going to hurt anyone. Like, it's not like it's obstructing my view or anything like that. So, like... 
it's cheap. It may help. It may not. I want it to. Um, but there were all these things like RT would pull it off or, or whatever it was, and there wasn't a ton uh, of people that were doing it. I think so, that goes into the best laid plans of mice and men. Correct. You know, <clears throat> because as much as we want it to work, you really have to do things, and this I think goes for anything, in the confines of what everybody understands right. and what the whole team knows is right. going to happen. Because right. if you don't, then you're just kind of fighting everybody and, no, I want this, no, I want that. So I think a lot of the early adoption works well as long as the whole team is on track right. with that too. So, But it was right around this time where I was like, why, this is a lot of work. Is it really worth it? That's like the fellow trial came out, which was the one that was done in the ICU setting, and it was one of the only randomized where they tried to control trials, although there was a little bit of bleed over about who got, you know, BiPAP as pre-oxygenation versus, you know, it wasn't perfect in that setting. But nonetheless, it was the only true randomized trial looking at this question of does that yeah, box work. Um, they came out and they showed no real difference, right? Right. So I, what they did is they looked at different O2 saturation groups and they said, in what groups was there desaturation? And there, even from the 90 to 100% group, there's no difference between right. the optic oxygenation, no apneic oxygenation. In the 80 to and up group, there was no difference. So a lot of people kind of touted that as the end of apneic oxygenation. I think a couple flaws with that study, is, as well as it was done, was when you push that apneic oxygenation back to a more controlled setting, I think you lose the value. So I think it's like most things you have benefit, you have them at the extremes of, of the range. That makes sense. And so I think in the ER, where these people have not been like hanging out at the low 90s for hours. These yeah. are people who probably have had their auction stores bumped up. These are way different than the people we see who came in who are just either excited delirium, hypermetabolic, and they drop their saps like that, right. no matter how healthy they are. So I think that's one problem that I would have loved to see in RCT in the ED right. and push back closer to when we're doing it. I'm not even sure if one of those is running. It sounds like they should be, because if there's not, we should do that. Um, but anyway, the the interesting thing that I find, though, is, and the reason why I was thinking about this recently when we wanted to do this podcast is because there was recently the, the large uh, systematic review meta-analysis of journal critical care that, <clears throat> again, this is a systematic you know uh, review meta-analysis, obviously, but it's always... And there's three or four of them that I can mention. There's one from Heart and Lung. There's one from the Journal of Community Anesthesiology. There's one in the Journal uh, American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Again, these are all like systematic reviews or meta-analyses, so retrospective. But they're all positive. They all show like decreased de- uh, episodes of hypoxia during the peri-intubation stage. And so it's like, yes, these aren't the gold standard of studies, but like one after one, they seem to be relatively positive. And, and so, I don't know, it's changed my outlook on it in like, yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. But again, I go back to the principle of, I think it works. I want it to work. It's not that cheap and it doesn't seem to be causing any harm. And now that we've got our like respiratory our RTs on board and like they're even setting it up, like you said, they'll even throw the nasal cannula on it and ask like, hey, do you want to keep it on? And they'll put it on the, uh, we actually have enough ports in our trauma bay where we usually intubate people that it's not a problem. Um, and so I, 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 I kind of did it a lot, then kind of fell out of favor with it, but I'm kind of back on board drinking the Kool-Aid again, to be quite honest. I, I, I've done it for my last couple of innovations in the fact that, I don't know, I, you have these retrospective trials that say, yeah, it probably decreases. I can't see any reason why it wouldn't be. 
an effort. It's, you know, not causing all that much trouble. And now we've basically like made it a systemic thing that we do. So, you know, I think, I think there's two components that I think the first part is, you know, what, what doesn't hurt must help, must help. Right. I'm not sure entirely that's always true, but I think in this case, I agree with you. It can't be bad. Right. And as long as it doesn't change anything, then you might as well do it. The question then becomes, at, does it ever become a standard of care issue because the systematic review says so? And one of the yeah, things you always tough. have to re- worry about with a systematic review is oftentimes they're kind of put out as the epitome of, of evidence-based medicine. But I, I, I always like the analogy of two third graders doesn't make a sixth grader. Right, right. Right, so, or the garbage in doesn't always equal the garbage out. And so, you know, you look at, like, how many randomized, I'm just looking at how many randomized controlled trials there are. And it's about, like, 50-50 randomized controlled trials and, and observational studies, but most of these trials are not very large numbers. So, and some are done in the ED, some are done in the ICU. Yeah, some are pre-hospital as well, kind of mixed bag in there. And so I worry also with these random, with these systematic reviews that you're, you know, mixing apples and oranges and talking about different types of patients and who really needs it. I almost liken it to high-flow nasal cannula, where I think high-flow nasal cannula is great, except in the CHF patient, that's the place to put it. And so if you Mm -hmm. mix all these people together, I'm not sure you're getting the cream of the crop patients to do it on. Because just like with anything, there's probably the right patient to do it on, and there's the wrong patient to do it on. So I think a perfect example was yesterday we were in the emergency department. There were two traumas came in, and all of a sudden, another patient in the critical care area just started going bananas. He was given 200 milligrams of ketamine prior to arrival. He was more or less sedate, <clears throat> probably pretty high on meth. He was hyperadrenergic and sweaty, diaphoretic. He was um, febrile at 39. And... All of a sudden, while he was calm, everything was going crazy, five minutes later, he goes nuts. He's screaming. He's thrashing around. One IV comes out. Thank God he has the other IV. You try and hold him down. Then you sedate him. RT is trying to hold the oxygen over his face as he's flopping back and forth. And all of a sudden, the stats are 40%. Nice. And... That's the kind of patient you wish you could throw the apneic oxidation on, but that's also the, the person that could never hold it down. Right. And so, you know, luckily, despite an attempt at delayed sequence intubation, he just dropped his SATs no matter what. Hmm. And so he was very easy intubation, got intubated quickly. He was actually, once he was more sedate, we were able to get his oxygen up also. But, you know, that's the kind of patient that somehow you wish you could put on the apneic oxidation, yet there, you know there's no way yeah. he would hold on to it. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's, it's again, a little this like Goldilocks. You're trying to find the right patient for the right, use the right tool for the right patient. And I think in all these trials, I'm not sure, unless you put them in the ED and have a system that's set up for it, I don't know how much benefit you're going to get out of it. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. It's like none of these... None of the questions that these studies have answered is who should we be using apneic oxygenation in? It's just like if it's used broad, broadly speaking, does it have an effect? But I guess like the overall noise that I'm hearing from them is, yeah, it seems to decrease our, our desaturations during innovation. So I don't know. Well, it's, it's funny that 
I, I would argue the opposite. It's a lot of the RCTs have said, eh, maybe well, not. Right, that's, and then you mix in some observational studies, and all of a sudden like, eh. you get a noise of effect. Now, again, that's if, a good point. if we were saying that there may be some harm for this, but I don't, I don't feel like there's a harm, and I don't feel like... And it's like not like it's expensive, you know what I mean? It's yeah. not like we're talking about Icatavan or right. something that's like, oh, this is going to cost right. the patient $700. And there's no unintended consequence that I can see come of it yet, right. other than a little slight logistical view. Now, I think <clears throat> implementing it everywhere, and this is where it becomes difficult, where if you train one place and they do aptic oxygenation, and then you, you go, go somewhere, somewhere else, and now you right. have RTs who are not used to that setup, maybe it's a little different... Again, I, how much do you lose? And I wish that's the I wish that's, that's, the, that's the, the question answer. we could answer. Yeah. yeah, is how like, yeah. much are we losing? I guess yeah. You shouldn't come in with like an iron fist saying why aren't you doing apneic oxygenation? Because really, like you said, there's not a lot of noise in our system. It makes sense because it's kind of been adopted. But so yeah, in the academics in, in the academic situations right. where the RTs are on board, everyone has a good understanding. The nurses are on board with it. It's an easy system to adapt. You have the extra resources to utilize. I guess. You could say in a resource-limited thing, in a resource-limited environment, hey, look, I only have one oxygen tank, and that's all I can use. Well, yeah. then you do what you can. Use an armor breather. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think I agree with you. In the end, it's probably a noise of benefit. I can't imagine any harm or unintended consequence. Yeah. And as long as you're not, like you said, coming with an iron fist and making sure, hey, this is how it's done or else, I think you'll get people who overall are more comfortable with it. Again, I've seen in my experience a couple people desat here and there despite apnea hmm. oxygenation, so I haven't done a ton of them with it, but I haven't haven't had that. Well that's when I stopped doing it for a little while because uh, yeah. the RTs didn't know what you know how to help and, yeah. and the, there wasn't enough um, oxygen tanks to go around. There wasn't enough nasal cannulas to throw on everybody so and then I, I couldn't tell if it was the difficult airway or it was the desaturation or... Because really what I don't know is what's the benefit of apneic oxygenation, right? How much more time does that give right. you versus non-apneic oxygenation? Which is, I think, what they were trying to answer with the fellow trial. trial yeah. And they should none. It didn't really <clears throat> right. give them any difference. So <clears throat> right. that's kind of where I was like, ah, well... I don't know if it's, like, with the observational retrospectives, if it's just noise and it's not answering the right question, but I don't know. I do it still in our setting because it makes sense, but uh, nonetheless. Any closing thoughts? No, I, I, think, uh, I think logistically, when you have a planned intubation that you can talk to your RTs and tell everybody and the nurses, this patient's going to come in, we have some time to get everything together, he's going to be not only pre-oxygenated, but in the case of a difficult airway, add some aptic oxygenation, and I'm doing this because I'm hoping to prolong his, uh, his non-desat time and get a for improved first-pass airway, and that's I think, should be the ultimate goal. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time, Dr. Shrieky. All right. Thank you. And thanks for listening.